Take a Bible and find 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. We're going to look at a number of passages. The main story of Hosea is in 2 Kings chapter 17. When we talk about kings on Wednesday nights, we're talking about the leaders of God's people. And so we've been reviewing just for the sake of the timeline and context. We've been reviewing each week the history of the men who led the nation of Israel. And that history begins with Moses as he brings the nation of Israel out or as the Lord uses him to bring the nation of Israel out from slavery in Egypt. He's a remarkable leader. He's a unique leader. He's a humble leader. He does a lot of different things for Israel. Uh, He has really, really big shoes to fill. And those shoes are filled by his protege, Joshua. And Joshua is a godly man, and he's up for the task, and he loves the Lord, and he calls the people to love the Lord and to follow the Lord. He leads them in. They fight the battles and the conquest. Moses doesn't get to go in, but Joshua leads them in, and they take the promised land. After Joshua, we move into the period of the judges, and everything's just off. Listen to a podcast this morning. They kept referring to Twilight Zone episodes. That's kind of the feel when you get to the book of Judges. It just feels like the Twilight Zone. You just keep waiting for what's the punchline. Something's going to happen here. Something's not quite right. Everything's a little bit off. So there's all these judges. Everything's a little bit strange. The last judge is Samuel, who is a godly man, but who has very ungodly sons. And he wants to put these sons in sort of positions to be judges after him. And everyone says, Samuel, this is a terrible idea. We don't want your sons to be judges over us. And so we end up with Saul leading the nation as king. Then we have David leading a unified nation as king. And then we have David's son Solomon leading a unified nation as king. Now, from Saul to David and from David to Solomon, there's some turmoil in there. There's some uncertainty. But those are the three kings that lead God's people, and then we come to the divided kingdom. So you have Israel in the north, the capital is Samaria, and their first king is Jeroboam. You have Judah in the south, the capital is in Jerusalem, and their first king is Rehoboam. And tonight, when we talk about Hosea, you're you're tracing this line of the kings of Israel, starting with Jeroboam. It's not one long family dynasty. There's interruptions. It's not one family line. But you're 19 kings down to the very last king of Israel, and his name is Hosea. Somebody has to be last. When you're picking for kickball at recess, somebody's got to be last. And when it comes down to this line of kings in Israel, somebody's got to be last, and the last one is Hosea. So this is the end of the northern kingdom. When you think about the end of a thing, uh, my mind this week went to a quote from a television show called The Office. And there's a character on The Office in the series finale. His name is Andy Bernard. And you're feeling all misty-eyed and emotional at the end of the show. And Andy says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you leave them. And you think, oh, now that's nice. And you sort of look back and you think about something in your life and you say, oh, those were the good old days. And I didn't realize I was in the good old days, but you look back with nostalgia and fondness and all that sort of stuff. Here's the thing. I told you this is a sad story. When the people end up in exile and they look back on the reign of Hosea, nobody says this. This is what the people say when they look back 
on the reign of Hosea. We'll put it up on this next picture. I wish there was a way to know you're in horrific times before you leave for something worse. It's a sad story. And you sort of, you, you read it out loud and you think, <laughs> and you sort of nervously laugh. It's a sad story. It's a really, really sad story. Every piece of it, every part of it, really, really sad. And it's the end of the nation of Israel. It is dark. It is black. It is hopeless until the very last minute where we're going to end up where there's a little glimmer of gospel hope. And that's where we'll, we'll put a button on this lesson tonight. But first, we're going to talk about Hosea in the Bible. Hosea, the name, means salvation. That is what his name means. He'd like to go back and talk to his parents and ask them, why did you name him that? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you praying? What were you hoping? But his name means salvation. I gave you some references here in the book of Numbers just to remind you, incidentally, that one of the previous leaders of Israel, we just talked about Joshua, was called Joshua by Moses, and his birth name, his given name was Hosea. So those are very close names. It's sort of like Moses just made a pun on a name. Hosea means salvation, and Joshua, okay, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. You add that J at the beginning in English, and the idea is that the Lord is my salvation. And when you get to New Testament times, just looking forward, there's a little bit of a spoiler alert in the uh, Aramaic language, which is probably the language Jesus spoke day in and day out. Uh, there is a name Yeshua. That's the Aramaic form of Joshua. The Greek form of this name comes down to us in the name Jesus. All of these names essentially mean the same thing, salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. It's a common theme running through all these names. So, Let's talk about Hosea. He led a conspiracy to assassinate a king named Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, Pekah, king of Israel. And it seems as if there was an interval of several years before the murder of Pekah in the actual reign of Hosea. And so I want to point out sort of a geeky Bible trivia fact thing to you without going too far down the rabbit hole. And I want to do it for two reasons. One reason, some of you are geeky Bible trivia fact people. And if I don't point this out, you're going to come talk to me later in the week and you're going to say, hey, did you notice this? And I'll say, yes, I did notice it, but you won't believe me because I didn't say it in this sermon. So I'm saying it now so you know, yes, I noticed it, okay? Corey had one of these little factoids last week and some of you said, hey, did you notice this? Yes, we noticed it. So I'm throwing it in so that you guys don't jump all over me. Look at 2 Kings 15 verse 30. 1530 says, Hosea, the son of Allah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. All that stuff happened. The assassination, the planning, the execution of this king, putting him to death, reigning in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, son of Uzziah. If you fast forward to 2 Kings 17, 1, it says, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, 
Hosea, the son of Allah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. So on the surface of that, you look at it and you say, that's an obvious contradiction in the Bible. People tell you that all the time. You hear it all the time on TV. The Bible's full of contradictions. One says he started to reign in such and such year of this king. One says he started to reign in such and such year of that king. These guys, it's on opposite pages of the same book. They can't even get their story straight. What in the world's going on? Here's the thing. It seems that in this process of assassination and taking the throne, there's a little bit of turmoil in there. That's not an unusual thing in the ancient world or in the modern world, from one king being assassinated to another king reigning. Also, Corey put a graphic up last week. I'm going to show it to you just in a, a list of names. Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz. Uzziah is unique as a king because his reign overlaps with the king before him and the king after him. And when that happens, it throws all these dating questions off. When does Uzziah's reign actually begin? When does it actually end? Where does Amaziah end? Where does Jotham begin? All these things are sort of in question. And I'm not going to put a timeline up on the screen for you right now because it's in this room, it's not really easy to see that sort of thing. But Corey and I looked at this today in his office, and when you factor in the overlap of these reigns of some of the kings, and you factor in this assassination, and you look at when all these things actually line up, 2 Kings 1530, the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, actually lines up quite nicely with 2 Kings 17.1, the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah. You can harmonize these things. So I don't just bring that up to you to say, ha ha, I found the factoid, don't try to fact check me. I also bring it up to say to you, people will point at this kind of thing and say, look, the Bible's full of mistakes. You believe this book? I mean, it's full of just the most basic, simple mistakes. One page right to the next. You can't trust anything in this book. A lot of smart people have read this book for a long, long time. Thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years. The smart little guys on Discovery Channel today and History Channel, they're not the first people to find these things. All right? Really smart people who lived literally thousands of years ago answered all of these questions and found ways to figure out, does this harmonize? Yes, it actually fits quite nicely. So I'm just telling you, we talked recently about doctrine of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. When people start spouting off about Bibles full of mistakes, you just tune that out, you don't let that get you up in a tizzy, and you just move on in confidence with God's word. So he leads this conspiracy, and they assassinate Pekah. Next, Hosea did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. It's a fascinating statement. I think it's the most interesting thing said about Hosea. It's in 2 Kings 17, verse 2. All I did is quote this in your notes. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So I had an experience this week that reminded me of this verse. We had uh, Boss's Day celebrated in the office this week. And Crystal and some of the ladies in the office, they got us a bunt cake. We had this bunt cake and they ordered Grater's ice cream, which some of you have heard me talk about from Louisville. We got to pick our own flavor out. They shipped it on dry ice. We all got to have our own. And then we all sat down and we had a slice of uh, pumpkin bunt cake, nothing bunt cake, and a, your own little pint or whatever that is of ice cream. And we all just were taking in the calories. Bailey Biggerstaff was there. 
And for whatever reason, Bailey wasn't going to eat the sugar. She's on some kind of diet or, I don't know, special eating plan, whatever. And so she told Crystal, I'm not going to eat all that stuff. I can't eat all that stuff. And so Crystal went and got her, I think they were cookies made of cardboard. And they were sitting there. And they were, there was a lot of them. Anybody could have got one who wanted one. And guess what? Everyone took the cake and the ice cream. Nobody wanted the cookies. And they sat there. And then when we were all done, Crystal said to Bailey, hey, Bailey, you can take the rest of those because I don't, I don't think anybody else wants them. And this is what Bailey said to sell us on the cookies. This is what she said. They're not the worst thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> I thought, hey, that's a, that'll really sell, right? Put that in a commercial. Cardboard cookies, we promise, is not the worst thing you've ever put in your mouth. <laughs> that's the tagline for Hosea. He did evil. I mean, he wasn't the worst. Could have been worse. Did evil. That's kind of like looking at your girlfriend and saying, you are not the ugliest girl I've ever seen. <laughs> it's kind of like looking at your boyfriend and saying, you are not the dumbest guy that I've ever met. It's kind of like somebody asks you, where do you go to church? And you say, Emmanuel. And they say, how's the pastor? And you say, well, he's not the worst I've ever heard. You could say worse. I mean, that's the, that's the tagline on Hosea. I don't want to go into this too much. I just want to say, listen to this. He gets, he gets a little piece of one chapter. There's not a lot about Hosea in here. So when there's something said about him, you pay attention to it. And what it says about Hosea, big picture, 30,000 foot view. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Don't live your life so that if I or Corey or one of us have to preach your funeral, we have to stand up and say something to that effect. Well, they weren't the worst. They weren't the meanest. Well, they weren't the, you know, the, the most annoying church member I ever had. That's the take on Hosea's life. And we laugh about it because it is funny. But when you think about it, it's really sad. You look back on, this is a real human being. And he lived a real life. And he was entrusted with the responsibility of being king over God's people. And what's the best thing that we can say about him? Well, he wasn't the worst. He was evil. But let's put a positive spin on it. He wasn't the worst. It's a really sad story. Hosea initially paid tribute to Assyria. He paid Assyria tribute as a vassal state and eventually tried to make an alliance with Egypt. We'll just read this quickly. 2 Kings 17, verse 3. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal, and he paid tribute to him. So when it says that Shalmaneser came up against him, what it's saying is it came to conquer him. And when he pays tribute, essentially what he's saying to the big bully is, take all my lunch money. Please leave me alone. Don't pound my face. Don't destroy our kingdom. We're tottering on the fence here. So just take it all. Take whatever you need, whatever you want, and leave us alone. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea. He's a dishonest man. He's a liar. He had sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him 
in prison. There's actually an extra biblical account of this story that says the king of Assyria bound him up like a bird in a cage. Bound him up. Bound him up in prison. The king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria and for three years he besieged it. So this is the next point. The king of Assyria put Hosea in prison and after three years of siege warfare, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, fell and it was overrun. The year that that happened was 722 B.C. Hosea reigned for nine years as king, the final king of Israel. And we don't know anything about how he actually died. What we just read says that the king of Assyria came and put him in prison and then besieged the city. It's not entirely clear how that happened. This is a pretty short account. We don't have all the details that we would like to have. But somehow Hosea was taken or given over or captive or whatever. There was some sort of negotiation. Maybe he was deceived. He thought he could save the people if he went out. We don't know. But he ends up in prison. And then there's a three-year siege of the city, and the city finally falls in 722 B.C. Now, I'm telling you, we don't know what happened to the end of his life, okay? That, this is the last we read about him. They lock him up in prison. Here's what we do know. We have reliefs, is what archaeologists call these, reliefs from carvings from the Assyrian Empire. And basically, they would put these up as promotional posters on their buildings and their temples and the walls of their city showing what they would do to other people. And so I don't know what it was like for Hosea to be taken to Assyria, probably the capital, Nineveh. Uh, Corey and I and and Jake and I and Jason and I talked about this as we prepared to teach it. I'm going to show you some pictures that are kind of horrific. Maybe none of these things happened. One of the things ancient kings liked to do was take other kings back to their capital and treat them very nicely and basically use them as a trophy. Maybe that happened to Hosea. Maybe he just went back to Nineveh and he lived there in the palace and he ate really well. And the king of Assyria looked down and looked at everyone else and said, look how great I am. I have all these little sort of kings, little little K kings as pets. They just sort of eat at my table and I take care of them like you take care of your chihuahua dog. That's sort of the idea. But when Hosea was marched into Assyria, this is the kind of thing that would have been up on the the billboards, so to speak. You can see them impaling people uh, over on the left. You can see down at the, the right, these guys are making some sort of deal. And part of that deal, whatever's going on, there's some heads on the ground that don't have bodies. Here's the next picture, another relief piles of heads. We talked about that when we talked about Jehu. Jehu was a wicked king, a violent man. He took all these men, he killed them, he beheaded them, and he piled up all these heads in baskets and put them out at the the front of the gate. He didn't invent that kind of stuff. All the nations were doing that. So they would conquer a people, they would fight a battle, and they would behead these people, and they would pile their heads up uh, on poles. Here's another picture, just to give you an idea. Um, These men are being flayed Skin is just being pulled off of them, literally skinned alive. One more picture. These guys are about to be beheaded in sort of an official beheading. Okay, so I don't know what happened to him. I know that if they took him to prisoner in Assyria and they marched him in, that's the kind of stuff that they had etched and engraved on their buildings and their walls. 
And it's entirely possible that that was something that we just saw up there was his, his fader's outcome. It's also possible that he lived in the palace and he was well taken care of and they sort of used him as a trophy to brag about their own greatness. Here's the point. Hosea's end is really irrelevant. It's not the story. There's something bigger going on here than just Hosea. One of the things we've done in this series is we've picked kings, is we've picked the ones who have enough biblical material to really dig in and, and talk about their lives. We've skipped a lot of them. I'll be honest with you. You know why we picked Hosea? It's because he's last. The story's really not that much about him. And we were talking about Hosea, his name's at the top of your notes, but the story really isn't about Hosea. Here's a quote from a commentary that I think helps put this in, in context. Gary Millar. He says, the narrative is so understated, it would actually be quite easy to miss the enormity of what has just happened. Five-sixth, that's just population-wise, how big the northern kingdom was, how big Judah was. Five-sixths of God's own people are essentially wiped out. The area of the promised land is drastically reduced. The reliability of God's promise is called into question. And the curses of the covenant that we read the last little piece of from the book of Deuteronomy, the curses of the covenant are poured out and the blessings are seemingly lost. It's a sad story. And we've joked about some things and we've sort of used some illustrations that have made us all laugh but this is a really, really sad story. For Hosea, it's sad, but for the nation and for God's people, it's really, really sad. So that's the story. It's pretty short. Not a lot of biblical material here about this guy, but he's important to talk about because he came last. So what do we learn? What do we take away from the life and the reign of Hosea as king of Israel? Number one, you know this one by now, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Take your Bible and flip backwards to 1 Kings, chapter 14. First Kings, chapter 14. You just rewound the tape all the way back to the first king of Israel. Okay? We've been talking about the last king of Israel. You have now gone backwards in time through the wormhole, all the way back to the very first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Not the united kingdom, the divided northern kingdom of Israel. This is during the reign of Jeroboam. And the Lord is giving a, a warning or a promise or an encouragement or a threat or however you want to take it. The Lord is communicating with this king, Jeroboam. Look what we read in 1 Kings 14, 14. It says, moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger." And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. You remember that right from the get-go, Jeroboam was terrified that the people would all eventually flock back to Jerusalem and Judah. That's where the temple was. 
And so Jeroboam said, we, just, we can't let the people just go back there in worship for all the feasts. We've got to have our own places where the people will come worship. We've got to have our own feasts. We've got to have our own religious system. And so he set up two golden calf idols, one in Dan and one in Bethel. The nation was literally founded on idolatry from the beginning. It was in the DNA of who these people were. And God says through this prophet right out of the gate, first of all, I'm going to be done with Jeroboam's family. That fully and finally happened when Jehu came along. We talked about Jehu a few weeks ago. And then he says, I'm going to pull you up and I'm going to scatter you. Why? Because of the founding sins that you embraced from your very first day as a nation under Jeroboam, he promises that he's going to get rid of these people. Now, back to 2 Kings 17. You hold those verses in your fingers. In my Bible, that's page 296 to 323. In the middle, that's 250 years. Do not listen to the people who say to you, the God of the Old Testament is a hothead and he just goes around blowing people up on a dime and he just loses his temper and he's uncontrolled. He warned them what was going to happen and then he waited 250 years to see it through. You understand when he destroyed the people in the conquest, the people in Jericho, for example, that they had a 40-year pause to figure out what they were going to do. They heard about the exodus when it happened. And then Israel ended up wandering around for 40 years. Four decades went by. And when they showed up at the gates of Jericho, Rahab said what? Oh yeah, we know who you are. We know why you're here. We're terrified of you. Did she say we're ready to repent and put away our idols and become worshipers of Yahweh? No. She said, they're ready to fight. They're going to hole up and they trust in their walls. They had 40 years to make that decision. When the Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh, their repentance was not a repentance as in conversion. It was basically just a temporary cease and desist from sin. And the Lord had said, I'm going to blow this city up in X number of days. And they repented and the Lord relented. Do you know how long he waited to take care of Assyria? A hundred years. A century. That small measure of repentance bought those people 100 years of God's mercy and his patience. Do not let people tell you that God is quick to anger. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in steadfast love for his people. 40 years for Jericho. 100 years for Assyria, 250 years for the northern kingdom of Israel. From 1 Kings 14 when God says, look, this is who you are, this is what I'm going to do. 19 kings in succession, none of them repent. None of them get rid of the idols in Dan and Bethel. None of them get rid of the Asherim. They are all wicked Every last one of them. Sin has consequences. So you fast forward 250 years. This is what you read in 2 Kings 17 beginning in verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel 
had sinned against the Lord their God. What occurred? Assyria coming, conquering the city. That's why it occurred. They sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had feared other gods. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns. From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer, saying, for 250 years, prophets and seers, saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. We're going to come back to that verse in a minute. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Here's what you hear from a lot of people. You hear verse 18, the Lord was very angry. He's so angry. He's so grouchy, has such a short fuse. Let these people get treated this way. 250 years, they had a warning on day one. They had prophets and seers for 250 years. They refused to listen. They were stubborn. They despised what the Lord called them to do. And they thought they were secretly going about their own religious business. And at the end of that, yes, the Lord was angry. He is angry towards sin. And he was angry towards sin. He's angry with sin. But he is slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. And these people had 250 years. And in the end, their sin had a consequence. We've talked about that with Jeroboam. Sin has a consequence. Part of the consequence for what Jeroboam put in place and what no one ever got rid of was that they had to leave the land. They got kicked out of the land, and it was horrific when it happened. Here's two things that are true of Hosea when you think about this story. Number one, Hosea was not primarily responsible for what happened. He was evil. Not like the rest of them, not as bad as the rest of them. He was evil. This was long in coming from all the way back to Jeroboam. Here's what's also true of Hosea. Just like all the 18 kings before him, he did absolutely nothing to change or to lead the nation to change. Was he as bad as some of the others? No. But he did nothing to move the people 
or to move himself towards repentance. Here's a second lesson. Hosea and the end of Israel remind us of the banality of evil. The banality of evil. The word banal or banal means so lacking in originality as to be obvious and boring. What we're saying when we look at the life of Hosea is the banality of evil. We're saying evil, wickedness, idolatry, it's boring. It's not creative. It's just stupid. The whole thing is boring and it has no originality. That's not how people in our culture think about sin. That's not how Christians tend to think about sin. We tend to think about sin as that's the fun stuff. And what you see when you get to the end of this nation and Hosea is taken away and he's just like all the others who came before him except maybe he's not quite as bad is you say it's just completely unoriginal. It's just boring. It's just the same old stuff over and over and over again. This phrase uh, was coined in 1963. There was a Jewish woman named Hannah Arendt and she fled Hitler's Germany as the Third Reich was coming to power. So she was a Jewish lady, Hannah Arendt, and she fled. And she was a reporter after the war, and she reported on the trial of this man on the right. His name is Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was one of Hitler's key, important right-hand men that helped carry out the Holocaust. So you have a Jewish lady who fled Germany, and she's reporting on the trial of this a German military guy who's now under arrest and being tried for war crimes. And when you think about that, you look back and you say, oh, I bet she said some terrible things about him. I mean, I bet she just wrote the worst stuff. I bet she called him a sociopath. I bet she said he was crazy and wicked and demon-possessed and all the rest. She didn't say any of that. She listened to the trial, and she coined this phrase, the banality of evil. She said, you know what, I think he was just a guy and he was doing his job and he just did what he was told and he didn't give any thought to it. And a lot of the time, that's all it takes for evil to get really, really bad is you just sort of put one foot in front of the other. I mean, I know we've got these two idols in Dan and Bethel, but they've been there a long time. So, you know, just, is it, are you really gonna be the squeaky wheel? I mean, 18 kings, have lived with these two idols. Are you, you're the 19th. You're gonna be the one to get rid of them? Like, come on, just get in line, follow along. It's the banality of evil. It's not creative, it's not interesting. It's just boring, it's predictable. There were 19 kings in the nation of Israel. We have talked about four of them. We'll put them up on the screen. We talked about Jeroboam, Ahab, Jehu, and Hosea. Those are the only kings of Israel that we've talked about. Most of the others, there's not really enough to justify a standalone lesson on their life and their reign as king. There was 19 kings. Seven of these kings were assassinated. One committed suicide. One died in battle. One was killed directly by the Lord. Each one of them, completely unoriginal or creative, basically did the same stuff over and over and over and over again. The sins that they were founded on, they never moved past them. That's the banality of evil. 250 years doing the same stupid stuff. That's the dog going back to its vomit. It's just over and over and over and over again. The same old stuff 
over and over and over again. Look at 2 Kings 17. You can see this in verse 21, 22, and 23. It says, when he had torn Israel from the house of David. So this is looking back. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, this split in the kingdom, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord, and he made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. That's what they did for 250 years. Exactly what Jeroboam did. Just a bunch of lemmings. They just followed right along. You know how easy it is to do that in our society? To just follow along, to just say, well, that's kind of what everybody else is doing. I mean, that's just kind of the thing these days, right? I mean, we don't want to be too weird. We don't want people to think we're fanatics. We don't want to be the squeaky wheel. We don't want people to think we're judgmental about things. So we just kind of, you just kind of go in line. That's the banality of evil. You don't set out with some grand scheme to be the most horrific person ever. You don't even have to be the most horrific person evil ever. You can just say, he was evil. Not as bad as the rest of them, but evil. It's the banality and the boringness. It's the uncreativeness of evil. It's just going along with the flow. Number three, idols are worthless and idolaters become worthless. Idols are worthless. Those who worship them become worthless. Second Kings 17, verse 15, talks about they despised his statutes and his covenants he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. I'm reading out of the ESV. False idols, and then the people became false. Same word, false and false. In the Hebrew, that's the same word you find in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over and over again. It means worthless, Vain, empty. Hevel, just emptiness. It's just nothingness. It's what an idol is. They should have known it. Elijah pointed it out to them during the reign of Ahab. You remember Elijah, Mount Carmel? Call him. Where's he at? Where is he? Shout louder. Cut deeper. Bleed more. Come on, get after it. And the text says twice. No one listened, no one heard, no one paid attention. Why? It's because that's what an idol is. It's nothing. It's empty. It's vain. It's meaningless. And the shocking reality is that as human beings, we become like what we worship. You follow Jesus Christ, you worship Jesus Christ, the process of sanctification, you become more like Jesus Christ. That's the book of Romans, chapter 8. God's plan for his people is to conform them to the image of his son. You follow Jesus, you become more like Jesus. You follow idols, you become like idols. Empty, vain, meaningless, worthless. That's a biblical truth. Look in the book of Psalms. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? The nations are asking that about Israel. Where's your God? You don't have a statue. We can't see him. Where is he? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. 
Their idols, the ones you can see, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but they don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. This nation, from its founding, worshipped statues of gold, calves in Dan and Bethel, poles carved and decorated to Asherah, the fertility goddess, Baal and all of his idols and statues and formulations, the rain god, Molech, the god that they offered their children to. They offered all of these gods, these empty things, and in the end, as a nation, they became empty. You don't think there's a warning for us in the West when you read that? This is true for individuals, it's true for a, a nation, it's true for a people. If a people, a nation, if you chase after idols, sex, money, power, reputation, education, status, on and on and on and on, comfort, you chase an idol, you become like it. You become like what you worship. Idols are worthless and idolaters become worthless. Last, let's end with some hope. Even in the exile of Hosea in Israel, God was working to bring salvation to his people. I brought up the question earlier of Hosea's parents. And they named their son Salvation. And you say, I'd like to go back and Ask them, why did you pick that name? Why didn't you pick Billy, Bobby, Timmy, Hosea, salvation? I don't know why they picked it. But I do know it's a reminder to God's people, even in judgment, even as he's angry with their sin. He's been slow to anger, but he's angry. And he's punishing them just like he promised. The last king that they live with is named Salvation. It's the last name on the list. The last guy picked for dodgeball. Salvation. Then they go into exile. It's the last name of a king on their lips. Salvation. What happens when they go into exile? Some of the greatest stories in the whole Bible happen when they go into exile. God starts working salvation in some of the most amazing, amazing ways. Think about some of these examples. Think about Daniel. God works salvation for Daniel. In the lion's den. He works salvation for Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. Has God given up on working for salvation for his people just because they're in exile? Nope. He can work salvation in Babylon just like he can work it in Samaria or Jerusalem. Think about Esther. Such a great story. God works salvation for the whole nation behind the scenes, not being in the spotlight through a, a Jewish orphan taken into exile, who eventually becomes the queen and saves the entire group of exiles, Jewish exiles, from genocide. Because God worked in salvation for his people. Think about Cyrus. This is how great and powerful God is. Hundreds of years before Cyrus takes the throne in Persia, God names him in the book of Isaiah. 
and says, he will be a tool in my hand. And when the time comes and the 70 years of exile are over, the Lord, book of Proverbs says that he turns the heart of the king wherever he wants like you might turn a a stream of water. He turns Cyrus's heart and Cyrus, for no apparent reason, says to all the people, you can go home. I'll pay for it. You're going to need a new temple. Send me the bill. And they go home with Nehemiah and with Zerubbabel, and with Ezra, and they're back in the land, and they're worshiping the Lord in a newly rebuilt temple. Who paid for that temple? Persia. Persian taxpayer dollars paid for the temple in Jerusalem. God's working salvation for his people over and over and over again. And then, as the people go into exile, and they come back from exile, If you're reading through the Bible, you come to a book called the Gospel of Matthew. And if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, and you look at verse 1, it says that this book is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then if you read down, you keep going through some of these names, in verse 9 and verse 10, you read a, about a guy named uh, Hezekiah, and you read about Manasseh. We'll talk about these guys in coming weeks. You read about Josiah. We've got a few more kings that we're going to talk about. You come all the way down to verse 16, and it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus, Yeshua, Hosea, was born, who is called the Christ. And then you keep reading, and this is what you, what you find. I told you we sang a Christmas song. Now we're going to read a Christmas story. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's God working salvation for his people. He does it all the way through the Old Testament. He does it even as he sends them into exile. He does it even as he brings them back from exile. And he does it ultimately in the fullness of time when the king of all kings, the son of David, is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he's named Jesus. The name given to him before he was born He's named Yeshua, Hosea, because he's born to save his people from their sins. is a sad, sad story. It's not the last chapter in the story. It's a part of the book where you close it and you say, I don't think I like this book anymore. And then your friend who's gone all the way to the end says, no, you gotta keep going. You gotta keep, you gotta keep reading because this isn't the end of the story. Jesus brings salvation to God's people. 